Hi. Carl Ellis back again. Um, let me ask you a question. Uh, have you ever been concerned about sharing your faith with somebody, fearing that you will not be able to communicate it properly or they may not understand what you're saying or nothing will happen? Uh, I want to share some things with you today that will help you in your ministry to Muslims uh, that will uh, enable you to understand the gospel in some ways that perhaps you haven't and understand uh, how people are thinking and what their issues are in, uh, in some ways that might be new to you. I want to talk to you speci- specifically about concepts of the concepts of righteousness and unrighteousness. Now, these are two terms that are covenantal and relational. Um, they appear in the, in, the, in, in the Bible, and God speaks of these things, but they're relational terms. Righteousness, in a simple definition, would be simply doing right by the other party in the covenant. Uh, God always does right by us, and therefore we should do right by him. Uh, I think of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. God has shown you, old man, what is good. That's God doing right by us. And then he follows up and says, he says, Then what are you to do? You are to do righteousness, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. So righteousness, righteousness is to do right by the, third, by the other party of the covenant. God does right by us, therefore we should do right by him. Unrighteousness, on the other hand, is a failure to do right by the, party, the other party of the covenant. Now, uh, when the children of Israel, for example, uh, made the golden calf and worshipped it, they were, doing, they were not doing right by God. When they uh, disobeyed the laws of Jubilee and those kind of things, they were not doing right by God. Now, righteousness has four dimensions. As I read the scriptures, I see basically four dimensions to righteousness. First, there is what I would call godliness or piety or whatever. Uh, This is doing right by God in the narrow sense of the word. Uh, I go to church every Sunday. I say grace before I eat. It involves acts of piety. It involves uh, devotion, uh, those kind of things. Uh, A lot of people think that that's all they have to do is go to church on Sunday, and they think they're doing righteousness. Well, not necessarily. Uh, But doing right by God in a narrow sense of the word involves piety. Justice, on the other hand, is related to righteousness in that it involves doing right by your fellow human beings. Now, I know if you do right by people, you're doing right by God. I understand that. But I'm narrowing the concepts here because there's, there's another point that I want to make. Uh, for example, um, uh, justice, for example, in the scripture would be uh, related to, the, uh, to what I would call liberation and empowerment. And basically that's summed up in the Jubilee Principle. Leviticus 25, 10 and following. Uh, if you remember the, the, in the law, every uh, 50th year was, was a year of Jubilee. All contracts were, were, all slave contracts were canceled. All debts were canceled. And that's why the scripture says, proclaim liberty throughout the land. And each person and each family was to return to their own property. Everybody would be restored uh, every 50 years. Of course, Israel never uh, obeyed that. But that is an example of justice, of justice. All right. Two other dimensions of righteousness are, one, the personal dimension, which means basically doing right on a one-on-one basis. And then there is the social dimension of righteousness, which involves doing right corporately as a society. So, now, we take those four dimensions of righteousness, um, uh, uh, godliness, justice, the personal dimension, and the social dimension, and we pair them up in all the possible pair combinations, and you come up with four manifestations when you pair them up in all the possible combinations. So you would have, and as a matter of fact, it it is best illustrated by a window with four panes. Uh, The top two panes would be godliness. The bottom two panes would be justice. The left two panes would be the personal dimension. The right two panes would be the social dimension. So in terms of the manifestations that the Scripture talks about, There is personal godliness, social godliness, personal justice, and social justice. 
Now, before I leave the social justice issue, you know, you know, there's a lot of confusion about social justice. There are two views of social justice. There is the historic view, which I affirm, and then there is the view that many today in the far left and others uh, advocate. Now, let me try to uh, compare uh, social justice to a foot race. There's a foot race, okay? And in the foot race, there is a start line and a finish line. Now, the runners are assembled. They're different distances away from the start line. They have different levels of preparation. Some have access to training. Some do not. Uh, Some are in shape. Some are not. But there are various distances from the starting line. If the gun was to go off at that point, it would not be just. So social justice does this, the biblical view of social justice. The biblical view would, would seek to give all the runners equal access to preparation and seek to make all the runners start from exactly the same distance from the start line. A biblical view of social justice cannot guarantee an outcome, but it can certainly give equal opportunity. And when the race starts... Those who run faster will get, get will cross the finish line first, and those who don't won't. But the biblical view of social justice would be concerned with honest results, that the officiating is, is fair, that there is no uh, bias towards this person or that person. It will be honest result, results, whoever wins, whoever loses. That's a biblical view of social justice, and that's the kind of social justice that I'm talking about. Seeking equal access to preparation an equal opportunity by being the same distance from the starting line. The results I cannot guarantee, but at least I can guarantee that the results will be honest. Now, the other view of social justice, the false view of social justice, uh, would do something like this. They wouldn't care uh, about the preparation of those involved in the race. They wouldn't really care about how, how far the different runners were from the start line. The only thing they're concerned about is for everybody to cross the finish line at the same time. So the the, the false view of social justice puts emphasis on equal results, regardless of the preparation. And so in order to ensure their outcome, what they would do, the, the faster runners, they would do things to hold them back. The slower runners, they would do things to push them forward because they don't care as long as it has the same results. So when you hear a lot about social justice today, there's the false view, which I totally reject, but then there's a true view, a true view of social justice, which I think we should affirm. Equal preparation, equal opportunity, honest results, as opposed to trying to have equal results, irregardless of the preparation and the distance from the start line. So we have personal godliness, Social godliness. Now, social godliness would be uh, people going to church and worshiping corporately, for example, okay? And, of course, personal justice would be, let's say, if I had an employee, I would treat him right, you know, on an individual basis. And, of course, social justice we've already talked about. So so when we look at that whole window, we we can kind of look at it as the gospel. The gospel involves all those things. And a person who comes to Christ is not fully equipped unless he or she in some way is functional on all four of those pains. Now, the person who, uh, each person in the body of Christ does not have to be equally functional on all those pains, but the body of Christ must have all those pains covered. So someone might be stronger on social justice than they are, than they were on, uh, let's say, personal piety or something like that. Uh, uh, but when you, you put the body together, you can cover all four panes of the window. And, and you have ministries in all of those different forms. Now, what has happened to us, one of the reasons why our gospel doesn't seem to, 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 to have a kick or have a punch uh, is because I believe that what has happened is that we are no longer functional on all four panes of that window. We tend to only function on the upper left-hand quadrant of the window in terms of personal godliness. As long as we say our, say our grace before we eat, as long as we say, we say our prayers before we go to bed, then we think we've done it. 
But there are a whole lot of other things that need to be done. And so because we have neglected, in essence, we have neglected three of the four panes of the window, and we have neglected addressing or, 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 or practicing two of the, of the, uh, of the uh, dimensions, the justice dimension and the social dimension. People near the, need to hear the gospel, and it doesn't make any difference which window pane they come into contact with first. As long as when they come into contact with the gospel, then they are made aware of all four of the pains and have some functionality in all four of them. I remember during the days of the civil rights movement, it was a a movement for social justice. And a lot of people don't realize this, but it was theology that drove this movement. But people were not theologically equipped to understand that. And so it passed as a social movement or a political movement, but it was really theological. But it, it, was, it would have been very easy to take somebody from a concern for social justice to a concern for the whole counsel of God. And so because we, I think, have tended to only function on the upper left-hand quadrant, the personal godliness uh, window, then there are people who are hungering and thirsting for the word of God, for the gospel to begin in one of those other pains, and they have not heard it. And therefore, they think Christianity is irrelevant. I would suggest that a lot of African Americans growing up in Christianity have never heard the gospel expressed in any of those three other three pains, personal justice, social godliness, social justice and therefore they think christianity or the bible has nothing to say for those things and that's one of the contributing factors that has led so many to turn to islam and to other things so that's the righteousness dimension now unrighteousness also has four dimensions and they are ungodliness ungodliness happens when a person sins and suffers his or her own consequences Okay. Oppression is another dimension of unrighteousness. Uh, oppression happens when a person sins and forces someone else to suffer the consequences. Or to put it another way, oppression happens when a person tries to impose his or her own sin on someone else. There's sin in my life. There's sin in everybody's life. Some of the sin in my life comes from my own heart, as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitfully wicked. But some of the sin in my life has been imposed from outside, and I struggle with this. And this is a lot of things that a lot of people don't understand. Uh, as a pastor, I remember, I, 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 I counseled many people who had, been, who had gone through traumatic experiences as children, and they carried the guilt. But it wasn't their guilt. It wasn't their sin. So oppression is imposed sin or the imposed consequences of sin. All right? So we've got ungodliness. You sin and suffer your own consequences. Oppression. You sin and somebody else suffers the consequences or you impose a sin on someone else. There's another dimension, the individual dimension. That is face-to-face intentional sin. I may mistreat you as an individual. That's just the individual dimension. And then there is the institutional dimension of unrighteousness. And that is sin that is woven into the structure and social fabric of society. It, 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 it's structural. Uh, it is sin that does not need the intention or the cons- consciousness of the individual to have its effects on its victims. Say uh, I live in a let's say I live in a community where there is a a swimming pool, and um, I I have nothing against Asians. I would say I don't have anything against Asians, but this swimming pool does not allow Asians to swim. It allows everybody else to swim, but it doesn't allow Asians to swim. And I participate in that pool. You know, I'm part of the club. I'm a part of the the organization that that takes uh, that swims in the pool. Well. I may not have any personal prejudices, but I participate in a system that does the prejudice for me. That's when I talk about the institutional dimension. And a lot of times 
we as Christians are not aware of the institutional dimension of unrighteousness, especially if we are in uh, a dominant situation in our society. Those of us who are in the dominant situation very seldom experience that. But those of us who are not in the dominant position experience that quite a lot. So, four dimensions. Ungodliness, oppression, individual, institutional. Now, you know the Bible talks about oppression. But when you take those four dimensions and you pair them up in all the possible combinations, you come out with four manifestations, as illustrated by, guess what? A window. All right? So here's the window. The top two panes are ungodliness. The bottom two panes are oppression. The left two panes are the individual dimension. The right two panes are the institutional dimension. Now, so we have individual ungodliness, institutional ungodliness, individual oppression, institutional oppression. Now, the question is, are we as Christians fighting the battle, fighting the great fight on all four panes of those windows? Are we fully functional in the warfare on all four pages of the... Let's, let's, let's consider this window, the Great Commission. Are we functional in all aspects of the Great Commission? I would suggest perhaps not. And I would suggest that perhaps we have tended to confine ourselves to the upper left-hand quadrant of the window, individual ungodliness. And that's what we fight. We, we fight people who read pornography and all that. Hey, hey, I'm all for that. But there are other things going on, too, in the society. And people who have concern, concerns uh, covering any of the other three panes of the window, and if we're not covering those things, then we're not communicating to them. And they get the impression that the gospel has nothing to do with that. So if the window of righteousness then can be considered the gospel, the fully biblically robust gospel, then it means that we have neglected three-fourths of it. And if the window of unrighteousness can be considered the Great Commission, it means that we have withdrawn from three-fourths of it. Now, let me give you an illustration from the window of unrighteousness. Um, This is going to be a little tricky, but I'll try. The first time I read the account of Abraham, or of Abram at the time, um, when he went down to Egypt to escape the famine in the land of Canaan, I got very upset with Abram. I mean, I was a new Christian, and as he goes into, as he approaches Egypt, he turns to his wife, Sarah, and says, when we get there, tell them that you're my sister. And sure enough, when they crossed the border, they were stopped, and he said, this is my sister. I got upset. Abram lied about his wife, I said. Uh, Even as a young minister, I would preach on that. Abram lied about his wife. What a terrible thing to do. But the more I read that passage, the more I began to realize something was wrong. And, of course, because I didn't understand my Bible, I was thinking there was something wrong with the passage itself. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with the passage. The Bible is the word of God. It's inerrant. Which meant there was something wrong with the way I was looking at it. The thing that I didn't quite understand i was furious with abram but god was not and i couldn't understand that god how can you let this man get away with this how can you let a man lie about his wife why didn't you do something hit him with a whirlwind or something but i read on in the passage and i recognized that god did get furious with somebody who did he get furious with He got angry, very angry at Pharaoh. Threatened to kill him, or to put it in some other words, almost whacked him, all right? Now, why did he get angry at Pharaoh? This is why. You see, at the time, I didn't understand the window of unrighteousness. Pharaoh was a corrupt, immoral king. And he believed in, shall we say, variety is the spice of life in the, in the worst possible sense. And so 
especially when it came to women. And so he knew there were people coming down from Canaan to escape the famine. And he evidently hired a bunch of thugs to go out on the highways and stop the chariots. And their instructions were, if you find a beautiful woman and she's accompanied by a man, if she is his wife, kill him and bring her to me. But if she, if he is her companion, pay him, and but bring her to me. Now, Abram, knowing this, he's going down to Egypt. He knows these are his choices. Either he can stay in Canaan and starve to death, or he can go to Egypt where there's food and live and survive. So he makes one choice. He decides He's going to go to Egypt to live rather than stay in Canaan and die. Now, I realize some of you are saying, well, if he had faith, he would stay in Canaan knowing that God uh, would feed him. Well, okay, fine. But he didn't even have the Bible yet. And I'm sure some of us would make the same choice, even though we have the Old and New Testaments. Where's his faith? Well, sometimes we don't have that kind of faith either. So he makes one good choice. He goes to Egypt. Now, here's the other choice. Here's a, here's a classic example of oppression, a classic example of oppression. One of the effects of oppression that oppression has on people is that it limits their good choices and maximizes their bad choices. Abram, unfortunately, had a choice between, between two bad things. Either he was going to lose Sarah to Pharaoh and be killed, or he was going to lose Sarah to Pharaoh and be paid. (laughs) So in my judgment, I think he made, at least in his mind, the better of the two choices. But it was Pharaoh and his immoral desires that created the situation that put Abram in a situation where He had a choice between two bad things. And that's why God was furious at Pharaoh. He said, if you don't return that man's wife back to to him, I'm going to kill you. What happened was that God recognized that this was a classic example of institutional oppression. Now, I'm not saying by this, I'm not saying that Abram was completely innocent. But I am saying, given the situation he was in, It is at least understandable, maybe not even excusable, but at least understandable that he made the choice he made. Let me give you a pretty good example of uh, individual oppression. If you know from your Bible, you know that Judah had three sons. Remember this? Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Well, Ur went and married a lady called Tamar. And the Bible says, and I love the way the Bible speaks, the Bible says, Ur was an evil man in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord killed him. Ooh, that's pretty straightforward. Okay. Now, what they had in those days, before they had IRAs and and Social Security and all the rest of that, they had something called the Kinsman Redeemer System. And the way it works is that if your husband died without giving you children, then if you never got married again, you would be destitute. You'd have no family, no one to take care of you in your old days. So you needed children. So the widow had the right to choose the next in kin, the next of kin, to marry her, to sire children for the namesake of her dead husband. And so she approaches a man named Onan, who was the the brother of Ur. And Onan agrees. Um, But shall we say, Onan agreed to be her kinsman redeemer, but let me say it in a nice, polite way, try to back out of the deal. He made the promise and he tried to back out or withdraw from the from from fulfilling the promise this made the lord angry so he killed him too okay now what's tamar going to do well there's one other brother shelah 
But before she could approach him, Judah came to her and said, wait, 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 wait. He's kind of young for you. He's, he's not ready for marriage. Uh, why don't you go back to your father? And when he gets old enough, then I'll let you marry him. And she agreed. She went back to her father. Years and years and years and years passed. And it became evident that Judah had no intention of allowing her to have his son, Shelah, as her kinsman redeemer. In the meantime, all these years, when business had to be done in the city, Judah would send his servants to the city. Judah stayed out in the camp. But eventually, Judah's wife died. And he decided that he was going to go to the city to do business. And of course, the, there, there is enough evidence in the text to realize that when they went to the city, they not only did business, but they, shall I say, um, also engaged in some recreational activity. Um, so Judah decides he's going to go to the city. Tamar, understanding what had happened to her, how she had been unjustly denied a kinsman redeemer, decided to disguise herself as a working girl, shall we say. And so he came down the road, and she kind of came out there and, you know, did one of those. I don't know what she did. Judah walked right up to her and said, okay, how much do you charge? She gives him a price. He says, I don't have that much cash on me, but I will give you collateral. I'll send a courier with the money. After that, she agreed. They transacted their recreational business. And... Uh, and he thought that was it. He goes back to his camp. He sends a courier with the money. And, of course, couldn't find the girl who worked that corner. And so after that, he said, well, that's just, you know, hey, that, you know, I, I got something for free. A few months later, he discovers that Tamar, his daughter-in-law, is pregnant. And he has her arrested and brought out to the camp. And he's about to stone her to death. Now, understand this. When they transacted the business, he left some collateral. He left his cane and his seal. Today, it would be the equivalent of a driver's license and a major credit card. <laughs> and so when she's about to be stoned to death, she says, I can tell you who the father is. And he says, well, yeah, tell us who the father is. She pulls out this cane and the seal. The owner of this is the father of this child. And immediately, Judah recognized what had happened. Now, most of us would look at Tamar's behavior and say, she was not right by disguising herself as a working girl. That was not right. That was a terrible thing to do. That was deceptive. Well, yes, it was deceptive. But we don't see that in the context of a larger sin, of Judah denying her the right to have a kinsman redeemer. Judah knew that his older sons were evil anyway, but he denied her, tried to deny her her right to have a kinsman redeemer. And how does Judah respond to her once he finds out that he is the father? He said, you are more righteous than I. He recognized that he had sinned against her and that his sin against her was greater than her sin against him. Classic example of individual oppression. Now, we read these passages and we don't understand those things. And we tend to we would tend to put all the blame on the on the on Tamar. Well, yeah, she I'm not excusing what she did, but it was understandable what she did in the light of the bigger reality. So if we understand the window, if we understand the concept of unrighteousness. And we begin to do ministry in those areas, understanding that there are extenuating circumstances. That people get caught up in things that are not necessarily their fault or that are not entirely their fault. Uh, then we can begin to tackle the whole issue of the, the Great Commission. So, partly, you know, one of the reasons why I think sometimes our ministry has less effect is because we don't understand the fullness of the gospel and the fullness of the Great Commission. 
it's because we almost exclusively focus on private salvation or personal uh, ungodliness or something like that. And so, uh, and, 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 if, and, if we do, and if we understand, if we only do our theology from the perspective of the dominant position in society, then we're going to be, compla- we're going to be plagued with that all the time. So, we've neglected three-fourths of the gospel. We've withdrawn from three-fourths of the Great Commission. Now, let me make some general observations about these windows. First of all, the window is a complete system in and of itself. Each pane of the window is dependent upon the support of the other four panes. It's one system, all right? If one pane is removed, the integrity of the whole window is compromised. And the removal of each additional pane further degrades the integrity of the window. And the last pane left will be stressed to the breaking point. So here's the point. Whether this be the window of righteousness or unrighteousness, unless we are fully functional on all four of the pains, all four manifestations of righteousness, and unless we are fighting the battle against all four manifestations of unrighteousness, then if we say limit ourselves to one manifestation, we will even lose that. It will break. And I would suggest to you that perhaps... At least in America, this, is, this partly explains the condition of the witness of the church. We need to repent of that, and we need to ask God to give us a, a, a fuller vision of the whole counsel of God. And if, he, and, if, and, and if that happens, then ministry to Muslims will be dramatically, dramatically better. It will not be very difficult. Now, let me kind of wrap some of these things up with, a, with, a, with another concept that I want to share with you, and I call it the conversion triad. Conversion triad. Why, do, why does anybody convert to anything? Uh, why do you convert to Christianity? Why does one convert to Islam? What, what's the whole point? Well, imagine a triangle like on the floor. You're looking down on this triangle, and it has three points to it. And each of these three points, these are different, these are different perspectives on the same thing. Each of these three points gives a different related reason as to why one would convert to anything. Why did I become a Christian? Uh, why did uh, Rashim become a Muslim? All right, here are the three possibilities. First, a person can be a- attracted to Islam or whatever because of what I call the standards. The standards, that's the doctrines, the, the teaching, the, the dogma, however you want to call it. They could be attracted because of the theology, etc. They could be attracted. And they, and they hear that, they say, oh, I want to become a Muslim. Okay, that's one. Another reason could be because of the person's situation. They were in a, in a, uh, a situation, um, um, the tornado hit their house, and members of the Nation of Islam came along and and rebuilt their house. Wow. Or um, I can use my example. Uh, I grew up Protestant. And uh, one day when I was about 10 years old, my mom and I were in Chicago, and she had a medical emergency that almost killed her. And in those days, if you were African-American and you had a medical emergency, it was almost like playing Russian roulette. If you were rushed to the nearest hospital, there was a good chance that the hospital would refuse to treat you and let you die. So we rushed her to the hospital. The nearest hospital happened to be a Catholic hospital. Not only did they save her life, but they treated her as if she was a queen of England. And she said, you know, there must be something about these Catholics. And so uh, then we became Catholic. It was a situation. And we saw something in the Catholics that we didn't see in the Protestants. Of course, I've become a Christian since, praise the Lord. But the situation can have an awfully important reason why one converts. And, of course, the third reason would be because of a person's motivations and goals. Let's say a young man, he grows up and he, he, uh, he leaves the church, let's say. He gets, 
He gets mixed up with the wrong crowd. He starts hearing things. He starts doing things slowly but surely, and pretty soon he's in the criminal justice system. And he's in the state prison for armed robbery or something like that. And he, and, and, and he begins to realize, you know, I've really messed up my life. I want to purge myself of the false values that I've accepted. I want to, I want to be righteous. And he looks at the Muslim community. They seem to be disciplined. They pray at certain times a day. They line up. They, they, they just seem to have it together. And he says, I want to change my life, and I need discipline to do that. And so he'll become a Muslim. He knows nothing about the doctrine. He becomes a Muslim because of some goals and motivations he has in his life. There was a very interesting scene from the Malcolm X movie, which illustrated that perfectly. When um, this uh, one of the members of the Nation of Islam was arrested and he was brought to the, to the, uh, the police station and he was badly beaten. And then they took him to the hospital and they treated him. And Malcolm X came out and the Fruit of Islam, this, this, this kind of a paramilitary group in the Nation of Islam, was lining up on the streets. And Malcolm stepped down and he did one of these with his finger. And everybody said, And there was this young man that stood by. He saw that. He said, I've got to be a part of this. It's a situational thing. He knew nothing about the doctrine, nothing about the theology. Yet he wanted to be a part of that because he saw a discipline. He saw a kind of a righteousness that he wanted to have. And he joined the nation. Now here's where we fall down a lot of times. When we get into debates with people of other faiths, especially the Muslim faith. Uh, we get into this attempting to communicate our faith to them. We get into debates about various things. Inevitably, we begin to debate their doctrines and their theology that may not have been the thing that attracted them in the first place. It may have been a situation. It may have been some motivations and goals. And so when I minister to Muslims, one of the first things I ask, I don't ask them about, uh, I don't try to tell them, oh, you believe in this and this is wrong and all that. No, I say, I want to hear your story. Why did you become a Muslim? What attracted you? I really want to hear your story. And they begin to tell me their story. And what am I listening for? I'm listening for what of the three reasons was the major factor in them coming to Islam. And I'm going to tell you this, having spoken to thousands and thousands and thousands of Muslims, I can't even count on one hand. I mean, I, 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 I can barely count on one finger the number of people that I've met who converted to Islam purely because of the doctrine. It was always a situational thing. It was always some motivational or goal they had. And I listened to their story, and I began to hear things like, I want to live a life pleasing to God. I want to be a righteous man. Well, guess what? As a follower of Jesus Christ, those are my heart's desires too. And so what happens is that I often connect with Brother Muhammad in an area of our heart's passion. I want to live a righteous life. I want to live a life pleasing to God. I want to be a righteous man. I hunger and thirst after righteousness. And we connect at that point. And then what begins to happen, his heart's open, my heart's open. I begin to share with him how the word of God has helped me on my journey. Oh, he shares with me how his Islam helps him. Oh, yeah, how, you know, when he goes through the cleansing, he does this and that and the other. And certainly I've learned some great things from Muslims. But when I began, began to share with him, this is how this passage of Scripture has helped me in my quest for righteousness. And it's right in the area of their heart's compassion, uh, heart's passion, they, they receive it.
and it begins to have its effects. Or he might say, oh, well, it's because of, you know, so-and-so situation. I can relate to you, brother. I was in something like that, too. And given the same situation, maybe I would do the same thing. I mean, if I was in a prison that was very violent, and if my choice was between being gang-raped or bowing towards Mecca to pray, which one would I choose? I would rather bow towards Mecca and pray. Hey, I've prayed many times bowing towards Mecca. Now, I didn't know I was bowing towards Mecca. There was nothing in the Scripture that tells me in which direction I cannot pray. But I'd much rather do that than to be gang raped. A lot of guys, they join, become Muslims in prison for that, for that reason, because there's mutual protection. I can understand that. I can relate to that. But if I begin to attack their doctrines without hearing their stories, what they are hearing from me is either if it's a situational reason why they came to Islam, they are hearing from me a denial of their reality. Oh, you weren't in danger of being gang raped. Oh, the tornado really didn't hit your house. Or your goals and motivations are bogus because I'm attacking their doctrine. Now, do I agree with Islamic doctrine? Of course not. But I come at it this other way. And I begin to share the word of God with them in terms of the reasons they, got, they converted in the first place. And they begin to discover that the scripture satisfies the thirst of what they were after even better than the Quran does. I don't have to do the heavy lifting. The word of God does that. And slowly but surely, I begin to see them come around it. Really amazes me. I, uh, a typical response I'll get sometimes. Uh, Brother Muhammad will come to me and say, "Hey, man, I was reading the Bible the other day, and I ran across the this guy named Job. He went through some changes, didn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, let's see. Now I know he's on the slippery slope. It's just a matter of time before he gets there. And I just kind of disciple him along. Oh, by the way, speaking about discipleship, most of the time we think of discipleship." That's something that starts when the person gets converted and after. No, discipleship starts when you start discipling. It's just a matter of teaching them to obey all things Jesus commands. One of those things is to submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior. But he may not be that, that advanced in his studies yet. That's okay. I'll bring him along. Why? Because I'm discipling him by applying the word of God to his core concerns which might be in the in the area of goals and motivations situations or whatnot and so that armed with a a a a a, a fully orbed understanding of righteousness and unrighteousness um i can't lose with that because now i have greater tools uh, my message has more robustness. Um, I have a much better uh, opportunity to have uh, meaningful, meaningful discussions and meaningful discipleship sessions with my Muslim friends because I understand my Bible a lot better and I understand them a lot better as to why they, why they converted. Well, yes, I, I've had uh, dialogues with Muslim clerics on various uh, do points of doctrine. That's okay. And uh, yes, I will defend uh, my faith, you know, with all vigor. But when it comes to witness, witnessing the people, it is more important for me to win them than just to win the argument. Yeah, I want to win the argument too, but I want to win them. Uh, I'll never forget. Um, Let, let me close with this story. This was a this was remarkable. I, I went to Denver one time, and I was asked to do a Muslim Christian dialogue with the head of the of the Nation of Islam there. And um, I agreed. I've done these things many times before, and so I got to the church. It was being being uh, done at a church. I got there, and um, it turns out that he was late. I don't know what happened, but he was late. So as we were waiting, some of the people said, well, why don't we just kind of have a question and answer session, um, you know, and we'll wait till 
you know, our brother gets here. I said, that's fine. So they started asking me questions. And there were some Muslims in the audience, and they began to ask me questions about community development. I said, oh, this is right down my alley. So I began to share with them about community development and how the Bible looks at it. And I used Nehemiah as my example. Nehemiah became my example for community development. Here was Nehemiah uh, working, having a wonderful job, uh, high pay, uh, career. You know, he, he, he had it made in his career. And yet his heart was saddened about the condition of his people back in Jerusalem. And so when his brother Hanani comes, he asks, he says, how's everybody at home? And what does Hanani say? Not good. The people are in distress. The people are in bad shape. The walls are broken down. The gates are burned with fire. Nehemiah immediately weeps. But he had the wisdom enough to know how to approach the king. And the king noticed that he was sad and he couldn't. He asked him, well, what's wrong? And he began to explain things. And Nehemiah had done such a good job that he, won, he had won the king's favor so much so that the king says, take a leave of absence, go back to Jerusalem, and help your people out. Oh, and by the way, I'm sending my Persian Express card with you. So you can, you can go to Home Depot or wherever and get all the lumber and all the stuff you need. Oh, and I'm also, since you're my valued employee, I'm sending a detachment of Green Berets with you to protect you. And he goes back. And he spends three days not saying a word, but listening and looking, trying to understand the motivational themes of the people. And he understands them. And then he presents his, his case. And it was one of the most amazing things that he did. He didn't just restore the walls and the gates, but he began to empower the people. He began to help them understand that they were now under new management. Because, you see, government policy towards Jerusalem was, don't allow those walls to be rebuilt or those gates to be restored. But government policy was put into Nehemiah's hands. And he said, we're rebuilding the walls and the gates. And in so doing, as he began to empower the people, they began to understand that ultimately... Their problem was not the walls and the gates, but it was the way they were exploiting each other. And he brought great reforms to the people. And as I was explaining all of that, in walks the head of the nation of Islam. And he's hearing me say all this. And he was flabbergasted. He never had any idea that the scripture spoke to such issues. He became a Muslim in the first place because he wanted to be involved in community development. And he didn't see the church doing it. So he heard me explain that, and he just made a tremendous impact on him. So we got into the dialogue, and the most amazing thing happened. Somebody said, oh, he, he kept, he, he said a couple of times, he says, we Muslims, we believe in salvation just like you Christians do. And I heard him say that twice. I turned to him, I said, would you please explain to me what you mean by salvation? And he was, he couldn't do it. He said, well, salvation is, is, is like when you have salvation, you know, by, like uh, being saved, you know, in salvation. You know how it is. And he just could not get it out. I said, I, I tell you what. I said, let me do this. I didn't want to embarrass him because I was connecting with him. I felt him. I knew where he, where he was coming from. I said, let me explain salvation from a biblical perspective first. And then I will allow you then to come and, exp and, and explain it from a, a, an Islamic pers perspective. Now, I know that there was no such thing as salvation in Islam, except maybe if you die in a jihad or something like that. So I explained it clearly. It, I, I was so clear in my explanation of what salvation was that even the pews in the church understood what I was talking about. I, I didn't mince any words. I was as clear as I could be. And when I gave him, I said, okay, now, you share with us what you mean, what you believe about salvation. And you'll never guess what he said. He said, 
I agree with everything you said. That's the way I see it, too. And the dialogue ended. You know what had happened to this guy? He was a Christian all along. But he had a core concern in the area of social justice that was never touched by the church as far as he do. And he wanted to satisfy that. And the only way he saw doing it was through the nation of Islam. Here was a Christian who was part of the nation of Islam because he wanted to do something in that area. Well, needless to say, he found out that the Bible does address that. And he didn't last in the nation of Islam too long. Last I heard, he was going to a Baptist church. Praise the Lord. But those are the kind of things we run into. Um, and, and, you know, many times I've gone to a mosque and I've spoken. These young ladies come up with tears in their eyes and say, please, thank you for, thank you for coming, but please keep coming. We need to hear this. Come to find out, here's a young lady, grew up in the church, devout Christian, didn't understand what Islam was, married some Muslim, not knowing what that was all about. And here she is in the mosque, starving to death spiritually. You run into situations like that. And it would help us if we understand our scriptures in more dimensions than we do. Get away from our one-dimensional understanding of the scriptures, but also understand why people convert in the first place to whatever. And learn how to apply the word of God to those factors that lead to their conversion. So they can come to the true word of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ.